This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. We're here today with Tracy McMillan, author of the book, The American Way of Eating. To report the book, she went undercover picking in the fields in California, working at Walmarts in Michigan, and working at an Applebee's in New York in order to uncover some of the issues surrounding food sourcing and food access in America. So, um, Tracy, thanks for being with us today. And the first question I'd like to ask is, could you talk to us a little bit about your reasons for writing the book and particularly why you thought going undercover at these places was kind of the best approach? Sure. So basically, you know, my background um, is as a poverty reporter, and I'm also someone who comes from a working class Midwestern background who uh, was living has been living in New York for quite a while. And so, as I started hearing this conversation around sort of healthy food and local food, and sustainable food, and sort of all this discussion about how important it was and how important it was for uh, low-income people to be taking care of their diets. Um, I just kept getting more and more frustrated and irritated listening to people talk about spending more on food without grappling um, with the fact that, you know, a lot of families are really struggling right now. And so I really wanted uh, to figure out a reporting project where I could play with that tension and that disconnect, right? Because I've, most low-income families do care about diet. They do care about health. And yet a lot of folks don't eat well. And so why is that happening? And really start to look at the structural reasons that that's the case but also get into some of the personal um, elements of that, you know, how individual choice works. And so that's really why I wanted to go undercover. Like, certainly I wanted to um, go and see how things really work inside an Applebee's and at a Walmart and and certainly in the field. But a big part of why I went undercover, um, you know, where I went and lived and ate off my wages for two months in each of these jobs, was that I wanted to get a sense of what happened to my internal logic around my food and my diet when I was earning, you know, $2 an hour, $6 an hour, $8 an hour, um, and working, you know, these jobs that are a lot less forgiving um, than work as a freelance journalist. Because I really just felt that, you know, there's no way to understand why people are making decisions about how they eat unless you have some sense of what it's like to live, you know, a life that has the same basic constraints. Mm-hmm. And now uh, you've talked in other interviews, and, I, and also definitely talk in the book about how it really did change the way you thought about food and change the way you ate. I mean, you talk a little bit about that while you were doing the project, how it did impact how you thought about food, how you cooked, how you thought about obtaining food. Sure. Well, I, I certainly, you know, threw out the idea of eating local and organic pretty quickly when I was in the fields. Um, you know, I was earning a dollar sixty for every five gallon bucket of garlic I could pick. So my first day I earned about two dollars an hour. Um, you know, so when you're dealing with that kind of a budget, you you're at the store and you know, organic is more expensive. It doesn't matter if it's worth it, you know, if, if you don't have the extra money to spend on it. Um so that certainly changed a little bit. I think for me the biggest change was actually that I came to really resent and dislike cooking, uh, for a while. You know, I'm I'm somebody who grew up cooking uh, a lot because my mom was pretty ill, so I learned to cook pretty early on, and I've always done that and, and enjoyed it. Um, I don't think I'd ever really realized that for me, part of the reason I enjoyed it was that it was a choice. You know, I've always been someone who had enough savings that I could, you know, if I needed to, I could go buy a cheap sandwich somewhere. I could go to the vending machine. You know, if I ever got hungry, I could get a quick fix. And, you know, I write about this in the American Way of Eating. When I was working at Walmart, I screwed up my budget a 
you know, just by about 30 bucks the first um, section that I was working. And all of a sudden, I ended up $30 short and with nothing but um, $30 short for rent and nothing but oats and some rice and some flour in my cupboard. Um, you know, and when it got down to the, the fact that, you know, while well, I was either going to go hungry, eat raw flour, or spend the next two hours baking bread, you know, that made it a lot less fun and less interesting. It certainly gave me a lot more sympathy, um, you know, for folks who say that cooking is too much work because, you know, that's me as a single person um, saying that. I didn't have to worry about kids and feeding them or, or my partner or anything like that. And I just really, you know, once I didn't have an escape hatch of, you know, a pizza or McDonald's, cooking became just a really boring chore for me. Yeah, there was another point in the book where I think you were trying to figure out like a couple of different social events, if you could fit them into your budget. And I remember some of the concerns were like, can I afford the gas to drive here? Can I afford the ingredients to make the cookies to go to this cookie exchange that I'm going to? I mean, when you're in that sort of dilemma, I mean, what kind of what kind of things were running through your head, both in terms of like researching the book? I mean, was it was it a surprise to you that it was so easy to get into that kind of situation? Yeah, I think I was really surprised at how quickly my finances fell apart, you know, because at Walmart I was making $8 an hour. And, you know, what had happened was I didn't account for the fact that I was working on the night shift and so that my paychecks for Friday nights would actually only go from 10 to 12, right, from 10 p.m. to 12 midnight. And then my next paycheck would have the following six and a half hours on it. Um, You know, so I ended up about 40 bucks short, and all of a sudden – you know, I was faced with, well, is it a question of gas money? Is it, do I get the cookies? Can I cheat? Is there a way to make cheaper cookies? What if I buy, you know, the cookie mix? And this was really interesting for me, right? Like I had this idea in my head that the cookie mix that I was stocking every night, which was 99 cents a bag, would be cheaper than making a cookie from scratch. So I bought the cookie mix and I said, oh, well, you know, these cookie mixers, they're probably a little drab. So I'm going to buy... You know, there's a bag of dried cranberries on sale. I'll buy that and put them in the oatmeal cookies. And I'll go and I'll, I'll spend a little extra time making the cookie look extra nice and do it that way. So I have to spend like an hour and a half making cookies, you know, with this mix. But, you, you know, with the mix, you still have to buy the butter. You still have to buy the oil and, you know, the eggs and things like that. And I realized at the end of it that it would have been pretty much the same cost for me to make something from scratch. Would have taken about the same time. Certainly probably would have tasted better. I'd sort of gone through this whole rigmarole of, oh, well, I guess I'll do the processed food version. And it didn't really save me any time or money. Um, And, you know, and sort of emotionally, I just, I felt like I got a lot of sympathy for how much people tend to sort of dig their heels when you start talking to them about their diet if you're not taking their budget into account, you know, because I write in the the book, you know, this cookie party was something my sister would throw. So I was talking to my sister, and she's like, well, you just have to bring six dozen cookies to do an exchange. And I was like, well, six dozen, that's, that's, that's three batches of cookies. And, you know, I would need three sticks of butter. They only have one stick of butter at home and a pound of butter. That's $4. And I don't, you know, to sort of go through the economics of that and to sort of feel sort of how resentful and defensive I immediately felt when my sister said, oh, well, it's just six dozen cookies. Um, for me, that was really instructive. Mm-hmm. Now, after ex- excerpts of the book were published on Slate, I was reading some of the comments from readers, like some of whom were saying they accused you of kind of being an elitist or someone who couldn't really understand what it meant to be poor and why didn't you have people who were actually working at Walmart or picking in the fields 
write, like contribute to the book. I mean, given that, I mean, what do you think book like books like yours and similar efforts? Like, for example, I know um, Newark Mayor Cory Booker recently tried to live on, I think, a food stamp allotment for a week. I mean, what do you think things like that contribute to the conversation about improving access to food and improving way that the way that Americans eat? Right. Well, I, yeah, I try to take these concerns about elitism really seriously. You know, I, I think that um, Catherine Boo, right, she's a pretty famous writer in her own right, um, has a really good line about uh, writing about poverty, which is that, you know, it's really problematic for a white educated person to be writing about um, sort of lower income communities. But the alternative, honestly, is that it doesn't get written about at all. Um, and so, you know, it's not a perfect solution. But it's something that, you know, if we're committed to having discussions about the fact that there are, you know, we have a society with social classes and with inequality, right, we've got to sort of work with what we've got. Um, And I think that particularly in terms of my going and doing this immersive reporting, um, it just makes for a much cleaner story, right? Like I'm, even if I had the time and budget um, to spend years with the family so that you can understand the internal logic of someone's head, um, you know, I'm never going to get it exactly right, um, you know, but I can tell people what I'm thinking and feeling as I'm going through these experiences and talking about it um, and sort of translate that as best as I can, you know, for the audience that buys books. I don't think it's the perfect way to do it, um, but I think that, you know, the best I can do is, is be cognizant and be thoughtful about that. Um, and, you know, and I, I say this all the time, you know, if you find a farm worker who has the time and the skill to write a novel or, or a journalistic account of their work and that can get a major publisher to sign on to it and that can take the time to do all the promotion, you know, I am happy to step aside. I think that that is a very valuable contribution and certainly in a lot of ways more important than what I can do. But, you know, I'm not really interested in writing about what it's like for, you know, a working class kid to get a job at a newspaper. I don't think that that's particularly useful. We don't need more stories about that. We do need more stories about what's happening at the lower end of the income spectrum. Mm -hmm. Now, you argue in the book, and I mean, it's made pretty clear by your experiences in the book that solving all of these problems that America has with food and sourcing of food and getting people to eat healthier, that it's going to take a multi-pronged approach. There's no real silver bullet to fix it. But that said, I mean, what do you think are some of the most impactful things that both like businesses and the government and even just average consumers could do that would make a difference? Right. Well, I think that when we're looking at businesses, you know, I don't have a huge background in dealing with the private sector, but I think that sort of doing a little bit more coherent planning about how food access works in this country um, and some of that's going to take you know, sort of a big umbrella, bird's eye view of stuff, which is uh, usually, I think, where you would find um, a role for government, um, you know, to try and figure out, like, how do you get food into communities? I think that's really important. Um, I also really do think one of the biggest barriers we're facing in terms of people eating healthier food is that most Americans don't know how to cook that well. Um, you know, it is absolutely possible to eat well and cheaply and quickly from scratch, but you have to be a very skilled cook to do that. You don't have to be talented, but you have to have a really good skill set. And until we start treating that as a piece of literacy that's important the same way, you know, math and science and reading are important, you know, I don't think we're going to see very much change. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that struck me in the book is you write that in all three of the places that you worked that you received... I guess, little to no food safety training. I mean, did that surprise you? And how do you think that contributes to some of these broader issues that you address in the book? 
the fact yeah, I actually was really shocked. You know, I write about this in the book. You know, I didn't get food safety training until the second job that I took at a Walmart. So I had already gone through working in the fields for two months. I had, you know, done night shift stocking in the Walmart grocery section, and then I had worked in the kitchen of a New York City Applebee's. And then when I finally get to the last job at Walmart where I'm working in produce, you know, I'm, I'm doing this training about food safety. I'm like, this is kind of familiar. What What is this? And then, you know, I had this epiphany moment where I was like, oh, people sort of told me to kind of do these things before, but nobody ever gave me any training in it, right? And for me, that was shocking to sort of be like, it's the Walmart produce job where I actually learned food safety training, not in the restaurant, not on the farm, but like the Walmart produce section. For me, that was really shocking, Um you know, and I, I think, for me, the thing that was most instructive about that was to realize that we really do treat food like it's any other commodity, right? We, we treat it like we don't have to worry about it rotting or going bad. And I feel like that really informed a lot of the way that food is being treated throughout uh, the food system. And for me, that was really shocking. Mm-hmm. Now, have you heard anything, I mean, since writing the book or as you were writing the book, I mean, was there anything you learned about the way food is handled, the way food is viewed is- food is viewed in other cultures and other countries that you think the U.S. could learn in trying to solve some of these challenges that we have related to food and access to food? Yeah. I mean, probably the biggest um, difference in, in treatment of food, and I saw this the most when I was living in the fields, um, sorry, living with farm workers and working in the fields of California, um, it's just that, you know, most other communities and a lot of low-income communities treat food as if it's valuable. Um, because it is, you know, we, we don't tend to think about this, but, you know, you're taking nutrients out of the soil. Like, soil is actually a resource the same way coal or diamonds or, you know, anything else. You can exhaust soil. It's a natural resource. And so we're taking all of those nutrients and all of that out of the soil, and then we're doing this whole huge system to get food under a plate. And yet, I mean, I forget what the statistics are, but we waste an incredible amount of food. I think it's something like 40% of the food that is uh, taken home by Americans gets thrown out um, at some point. And so, you know, to really appreciate how important food is, you know, I think think is a really big deal. You know, we, we talk about, oh, you could never feed the world with organic agriculture. And, and I think that there's a lot of, I, you know, I would sort of argue with and complicate that, you know, but if we're throwing away 40% of our food, maybe if we just stopped throwing it out, you know, we would have a much better shot at developing a sustainable agricultural practice that can feed us, you know, for the long haul. Now, I had said when we first started talking that I guess reading the book made me think twice about eating at Applebee's again. It made me maybe think twice about shopping at Walmart. But I mean, I guess how would you respond to someone that would come out? You said a lot of people tell you that. I mean, is that what we should really be learning, though? I mean, if someone comes up, like, how would you respond to someone that's saying, OK, I read the book and now I'm just going to not I don't want to eat at Applebee's anymore? I'm wondering if I'm missing Um, the lesson here, I guess, a little bit. Right. I mean, my work isn't really about saying, like, do this, not that, Um, and particularly something like Applebee's. You know, like, that's what exists. If that is something that, you know, someone feels is a good treat for them, like, I totally support that. That's fine. Um, And even shopping at Walmart, you know, uh, I'm a real critic of the idea of voting with your dollars as a substitute for actual political participation Mm -hmm. um, and for actually doing things in communities to change not like which store is there but sort of you know how things are working overall so you know i think you know people need to make decisions for themselves about what they're comfortable with or not but for me the bigger 
lesson in the book was sort of a much broader rhetorical one, right? Which was to say, like, look, food is not an elite preoccupation. It's not a luxury lifestyle product. It's something basic that everybody wants, everybody needs, and pretty much everybody appreciates. Or at least certainly, you know, to point out that, you know, there are plenty of people at the low income end of the spectrum who care about their meals, just as there are plenty of people at the high end of the income spectrum don't. Um, and if we're going to have a real serious conversation about our food system, we need to make sure that we're talking about everybody, not just, you know, sort of well-educated elites that can go to the farmer's market and afford to pay farmers, you know, a good fair price at market. Um, you know, for me, it's less about, you know, don't go to Walmart and much more about, like, let's think in a systematic way about how we want the food system to work and then build back from there and, and figure out how we can do that. Right. And I mean, because it also made me think, I mean, the Walmarts of the world, and it's clear from your book just to how deeply ingrained Walmart, for one, is in this whole food system that they're not going away. Yeah, I mean, Walmart's not going to go away. And frankly, we'd be in really big trouble right now if they did because they control a quarter to a third of our food supply. So if all of a sudden Walmart went belly up, you know, it's a quarter to a third of the grocery stores in America closing their doors. Um, and that, for me, you know, that idea, right, this idea that we have a food system, a food retailer that's kind of too big to fail, um, that was a little terrifying for me. You know, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I would really like there to be a food delivery system into communities that is flexible, right, and that isn't so centralized that if it collapses, we're all in really big trouble. Mm-hmm. And I guess my final question would be, I mean, after having all of these experiences while writing the book, how has it changed? I mean, have you found that there's been some lasting change in the way you eat and the way that you view food on a day-to-day basis? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've gotten a lot better about budgeting, that's for sure. Um, and, and actually, you know, it, ironically, the year after I finished all of the undercover reporting, um, and so I, I basically needed to sort of hole up somewhere and just write and do reporting but couldn't, you know, otherwise earn income, I actually ended up on food stamps for the year. Um, and so between the work I had done undercover and then being on food stamps, mm-hmm. you know, I've gotten very good at not wasting food um, and at, at thinking of cooking actually as a chore. And in a way, this has been really liberating for me, right? When I thought about it as entertainment only, um, you know, if I didn't feel like cooking, I didn't do it. And then I would spend money on prepared food or I would just eat crackers for dinner. And now, you know, I just feel very firmly like, look, cooking is a chore. I don't always like doing it. I still have to do it. You know, I don't like taking a shower every day necessarily. I still have to do it. I blow dry my hair for 20 minutes. I can spend 20 minutes, you know, making sure I eat something healthy. And and sort of changing the way I thought about food to that, like as part of my basic, you know, you know chores to do as a human as opposed to just something entertaining that I like to do, that really transformed my diet. And I eat much um, healthier, a lot more stuff that's cooked at home. Um, And I certainly save a lot of money that way, too. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Tracy, thanks so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.